millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 115. I'm your host, Nicholas eaton Clark, and we're beginning today with Rain Like Diamonds by Wendy Nickel. When Wendy isn't travelling in time, exploring magical islands or investigating mysterious phenomena, she enjoys a quiet life near Utah's Wasatch Mountains with her husband and sons. She has a degree in elementary education, a fondness for road trips, and a terrible habit of forgetting where she's left her cup of tea. Her short fiction has been published by A.E., Daily Science Fiction, and others, and she is a member of SFWA. For more info, visit her website via the link in our show notes. Her story is read by Catherine Logan. Catherine had many years of training in theatre and voice in her youth, and then many years of teaching acting, drama, writing, and English literature as a grown-up. She has studio experience in narration, commercial and animation voiceover work and is now involved in a second career which takes her back to her first love. She too can be found online via our show notes. And now, Rain Like Diamonds by Wendy Nickel. The Queen hoarded the barrels of seed keeping them locked within her coffers among the diamonds and gold and strings of perfect pearls, remnants of the former days of prosperity and excess. The seeds would receive neither sun nor water nor nutrients from the soil until unlocked by the shining key strung around her neck. Day after day she sat upon her throne, and the villagers lined up before her, pleading. It was only her loyal guards, with their sharp swords glimmering in her peripheral, who kept the villagers from severing her neck to get at that key. Have mercy, they cried, as though their tears might change her mind. Our children need nourishment, they shouted as if she, too, hadn't been watching her own son grow thin and wan and dull. Just one barrel, one barrel will keep us alive for a few days longer. She held her chin high, her eyes downcast and sorrowful. I cannot, though it broke her heart. She spoke the truth. It was true, the meager meal would sustain them for a day or two but that would be one less barrel to plant when the famine ended, when those who remained stood a chance. Nothing had grown for many seasons till all the people's cupboards, barns, and storehouses and cellars were empty. All that remained within them were empty jars, dust-lined shelves, and if one breathed in deeply, the haunting memory of the scent of food. Yet even if the queen had thrown the seeds to those standing beneath her balcony, had given the seeds to the kingdom's best farmers, it was futile. Nothing would grow. 
and their hunger would not be satiated. Nothing would grow until the dragon-scorched earth was healed. A messenger burst into the throne room. His gait, once like a thoroughbred's, was now the spindly stumble of one whose legs were too thin, whose ankles too prone to turn. My queen! The sorceress has spoken! The queen rose from her throne, for this news was long awaited. Since first the crops refused to grow, the sorceress had been locked in her tower, spending countless hours staring into her scrying pools and crystal balls, searching for an answer. Well, what is it? the queen demanded. You must see her in the tower. The queen climbed the spiraling stairs to the castle's dreary north tower. Though winded, she pressed on, for the task of climbing a staircase was so small compared with what her people had already suffered. Sorceress! Sorceress! she called as she entered the chamber. Sorceress! What am I to do? The sorceress's voice echoed through the chamber, coming from nowhere and everywhere at once. One shall weep at the foot of the tree and the rain shall fall like diamonds on the earth. Throughout the kingdom the queen sent the order, and on the following morning every man, woman, child arrived at the palace gates. The captain of the guard barked out directions, and the queen led the procession. The feeble and sick were carried or slung into carts. Their loved ones pulled them along, for throughout the entire kingdom not a single horse or donkey remained that hadn't been made into soup. The queen led the mourners from tree to tree, pausing at each one to tearfully recall those who had succumbed to the famine, until they traversed the entire kingdom and their eyes were as dried out as the parched earth. Yet still, the rain refused to fall. Defeated, the queen turned away and locked herself up in the palace. That night, the men, restless with no fields to tend, gathered at the tavern, though they'd long ago brewed the last of the hops. They muttered and grumbled against the weather, the fields, and even the queen herself. The dragon, Thumander said, raking his hand through his beard. The dragon was the beginning of this trouble. Nothing has grown since it scorched our fields. Let's do away with it, Leverett said. He slammed his fist on the table. Their voices, hoarse with thirst, rose in agreement, and they conspired together all night. The dragon, they agreed. There was nothing else for them to do, nothing else they could do except to kill the dragon. Though the hour was late, the men requested an audience with the queen. They told her of their plan, and she reluctantly consented. It'll do no good, she warned, but allowed them to proceed through the once lush forest that now stood like an oversized bramble bush full of thorns and prickers. At least, she considered, this quest would make them feel useful. In the inky blackness of night, with their torches burning brightly, they crept to the dragon's lair. The beast exhaled smoke with each sleeping breath, and if the villagers could only overlook its enormous size, they might have seen how the creature was really quite peaceful like the cats that had once dozed at their hearths, before the rats had all been killed, and the cats became more valuable for their meat than for their ability to hunt. The men had disguised their scent by carrying pine branches native to the hill near the dragon's cave. Carefully, they dropped the branches, and the strongest of the men clamped an iron band snugly around the dragon's snout. The dragon woke with a start, its pupils like coals in its fiery eyes, but the men held tight to the chains and together dragged the creature down to the castle. The villagers' triumphant cries rose with the morning sun, and golden light trickled through the brittle branches of the rosewood. The queen looked out from the balcony at the crowd below her. 
We've captured the dragon. Come, watch it die. The queen felt the heat of their anger and shivered at the coldness in their voices. The enormous eye of the ensnared dragon stared at her, knowing. Yet what was she to do? She raised her scepter to give the command, but at the last moment a small boy rushed forward and fell upon the beast. The queen gasped. It was the prince. Please, mother, he begged. Please don't kill it. Will there ever be a more wonderful creature? Please spare its life. Send it away from this place if you must, but don't kill it. I beg you, please show it mercy. Glistening tears crept down his face and landed at the base of the tree. They darkened the soil as the roots soaked them in. The crowd stared as green life burst forth from the tree. First, tiny specks of color. Then long, lush leaves spread across the tree's outstretched branches. They were so startled by the transformation that they loosened their grasp on the dragon. Seeing its only opportunity, the beast lunged forward, flapped its wings, and launched itself skyward, with the prince still clinging to its back. My son! the queen called. But the dragon rose into a dark, heavy cloud. Just as they disappeared, the sky burst open and rain poured down. The crowd cheered and danced about, splashing in the puddles and laughing, seeing only the rain. They rushed to the castle and broke into the queen's coffers, but she made no move to stop them, for she saw only the final glimpse of her son. Her son, who had saved the kingdom. The sun she'd never see again, and her tears fell like diamonds on the earth. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And thank you, Wendy, for a wonderful tale. It, along with more of her work, originally appeared at the Daily Science Fiction website. It's a great place to find flash fiction. You should check it out if you haven't already. Our next story is Cherry Blossoms on the River of Souls by Richard Parks who has written and published science fiction and fantasy longer than he cares to remember. His works have been finalists in both the World Fantasy and Mythopaic Awards and have appeared in Asimov's, Realms of Fantasy, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet and several years' best anthologies. Park's blogs at the Den of Ego and Iniquity Annex No. 3, also known as richard-parks.com. His story is read for us by Eric Luke the screenwriter of the Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake. Eric has written for the comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman, 
and he wrote and directed the not-quite-human films for Disney TV. His current project, Interference, a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills, is a bestseller on Audible.com. And now, Cherry Blossoms on the River of Souls, by Richard Parks. The tales varied as to why the well was outside the village rather than inside. Some say that an earthquake and rockfall destroyed the original town site and the survivors rebuilt the village at a safer distance, leaving the now dry well where it was. Others say that a sake-addled farmer relieved himself in the well one night, so offending the spirit of the well that it had moved itself and had been dry ever since. Whichever version one believed, the well was where it was, and nearly every evening the boy called Hiroshi came to stare down into the darkness and listen. The well was full of music. Hello, Hiroshi said to the unseen musician, as was his habit. There was no answer. Hiroshi was never quite sure what he would have done had the darkness answered him. There was a spirit in the well, of course. His uncle, Saito, the priest, said there were living spirits in everything, and Hiroshi believed that. Still, the darkness did not answer him. One fine spring evening, his uncle Saito walked out of the village to where Hiroshi sat by the well. He had been a soldier and was now a priest. But it was as Hiroshi's uncle that Saito came to speak with Hiroshi that evening. Greetings, nephew, he said, and sat down beside the boy. Hello, uncle. Is there something the matter? I'm not certain. I would be grateful if you would help me decide, so I must ask. What is your fascination with this well? Is father worried? He's raised no objections so long as I do not neglect my obligations. My brother is a practical man, and you are a dutiful son to him. However, my question was not to my brother. Hiroshi blushed. Forgive me, uncle. I sit here because I like to listen. There is a sound coming from the well, from down in the darkness. It's almost as if the music is being played just for me. Almost as if I've heard it before. I don't understand that, but that's how it feels. Saito sat down beside him and leaned forward just a bit, listening. After a while, he pulled back the sleeve of his robe and picked up a pebble. He dropped it over the side. What do you hear now, Hiroshi? I hear the pebble rattling against stones, fading. Now I hear nothing. No splash? Not even a small one? No. Saito nodded. Nor will you ever. This was a well. Now it is not. Now it is just a hole down deep into the ground. The underground is the province of dead things, and dead things should not concern the living. Look around you now. What do you see? Hiroshi did as his uncle directed. He saw children his age flying kites in the waning light, running along the ridges of the flooded rice fields, playing games with tops and hoops, laughing. It all seems childish. Hiroshi said. Is it inappropriate for children to do childish things? Or the living to do what nature decrees that the living must? This is your world, Hiroshi. There is nothing in that well that should be of concern to you. Will you think about what I have said? I will, uncle, Hiroshi said. And Saito left him there. His uncle glanced back once, but not a second time, as he walked away. Hiroshi, being an honest boy, did what he had promised to do. He thought about what his uncle had said, and he studied carefully for a moment or two the activity, now fading with the day, around him. I've played those games, he said to himself, time and again. They do not change. The kites pull on the wind as they always have, as they will for anyone. This song is for me. All this was justification and pointless. The only justification Hiroshi needed was the song he still heard. 
coming from the depths of the well. The next evening Hiroshi joined his playmates at their games for a time to appease his uncle, but when playtime was over and all his friends had gone home, he returned to the well. He moved quickly, with furtive glances all about to see if anyone was there to see. He carried a long rope coiled over one shoulder and a small knife in his sash. The rope was a sensible idea, but that blade may not be enough, his uncle said. He sounded sad. Hiroshi froze as his uncle Saito stood up from his hiding place behind the well. How did you know, uncle? It serves a priest well to know how to look into a person's eyes and see clearly what plagues them. You are plagued by discontent, nephew. Unfortunately, unlike other spirits and minor devils, this one bows to no spell of exorcism. You must cast it out. Yourself. Hiroshi hung his head. How do I do this, uncle? Perhaps by doing what you want. I still advise against it. But this devil shows no sign of leaving you. Saito took the rope from Hiroshi's shoulder and made one end fast to a post beside the stone rail marking the well. He threw the other end down into the blackness. Do you still hear music, nephew? Hiroshi listened for a moment. Yes, uncle, I do. Then follow it down and satisfy your devil. Then perhaps he will leave and you will come back to us. I hope so. Else I must explain your absence to your father. And I would rather avoid that duty. Hiroshi put his hand on the rope. He stared into the forbidding blackness, as he often had, but he barely hesitated. I will come back, uncle. I promise. Do not promise. I merely ask that you be careful. Powerful kami are drawn to such places, and most are not likely to be friendly to you. Take this. Saito held up the shorter of the two swords he'd carried as a soldier. Remember what little I taught you of the way of the gods. Most of all, remember who you are. I think that is the important thing, no matter where a person may go. Hiroshi took a deep breath and climbed over the side of the well. The last thing he saw before darkness closed in was his uncle peering sadly down at him from a circle of daylight. That daylight quickly faded as the well shaft made an abrupt turn at the bottom into what looked like an ordinary cave. Hiroshi listened very closely, but now he didn't hear the music at all. That's very strange. It was a most persistent sound when I heard it from the side of the well. Persuasive, I think, he said, though Hiroshi still couldn't fit words to what the argument was supposed to be. Now all was silent, except for a faint rush of air, as if the winds of the underground could not wait to escape past him and up the well to sunlight. Hiroshi's hair blew about his face and tickled his forehead. The scent carried by the wind was of damp and mold and a faint hint of a spice that Hiroshi could not identify at all. There was darkness about, as he had expected. Indeed, he'd brought a small lantern along, but found he didn't actually need it. Once his eyes adjusted, there was light there, of a sort. He could make out where to walk, where boulders lay in his path and where not. The only thing left to do was to choose which direction to go. Where is the music? He listened very intently, trying to hear around the moan of the wind in his ears. There had been a promise in that music, something wonderful beyond Hiroshi's imagining, familiar, too, though he could not say how. After a few moments he thought he heard it again. He wasn't sure. He wondered if there had been a concentrating effect from the well itself, like wind through a reed flute. The music was much harder to hear this much closer, presumably, to the musician. Hiroshi finally took his best guess and started walking. He soon came to what had clearly been part of the underground river, now dry and full of stones. An old woman was waiting for him there, looking impatient. At least Hiroshi thought it was an old woman. That was what he told himself when he saw her. She was more a collection of rags and bones than anything. But there was a face and wrinkles, 
and a thin, toothless grin. Give me those, she said. Her voice was like dead leaves blowing across stones, and her eyes glittered like black pebbles. Hiroshi blinked. Those? Those what? Clothes! Give them to me! Hiroshi thought this very rude, but he was more confused than offended. Who are you? Why do you want my clothes? She ignored that. You must give your clothes to me before you cross the river. Now! Apparently, now meant now. She reached out with one clawed hand, snatching at his sleeve. She managed to tear off a strip of his sleeve and gouge a line of red across his wrist. Hiroshi took a step back. Here now, grandmother, stop that! She stopped for a moment, but she was looking at the blood on Hiroshi's wrist. You're alive! It sounded like an accusation. Of course I'm alive. What did you think? That you were not, of course. Now I think you're a fool! She blinked, and for a moment Hiroshi saw some kind of recognition there, something beyond the cold darkness he had seen before. It didn't last. The cold, relentless stare returned. Clothes? You don't need them. Not where you are. Not where you're going. Mine! The last came out in a shriek of rage and malice. For Hiroshi's part, he didn't know what she was, but he knew she wasn't human. A kami. Or perhaps a demon in somewhat human form. When she came for him again, he had his uncle's wakazashi out and ready. Stay back, monster! She hissed like a snake and struck at him. Hiroshi dodged and struck back. It was only the feel of the blade as it struck something solid that told him of the hit. The rag-and-bone creature did not cry out. It merely stepped back, confused. Mine! she repeated. Hiroshi took a deep breath and a firmer grip on his sword. You've been in the dark too long, grandmother. Don't force me to strike you again. She looked at Hiroshi, or rather at his clothes, then looked at the sword again. Mine, she said again. Soon enough. I can wait. She cackled with laughter and then spread out her arms like a kite. In answer, the breeze there swelled into her rags and she lifted off into the darkness. In a moment, she was out of sight in the deeper black of the caves. Hiroshi waited for a bit, sword at the ready, but she did not return. He finally put the blade away. Well, he said, that was very strange. He didn't like to think of himself as a fool, despite what the creature had said. He had already met one monster on his short journey, and it seemed likely that there would be others. He wondered if the beautiful music was being played by another monster, to lure him down. If so, it worked. But for what purpose? And why is the music fainter now than when I kneeled at the well? Because it's farther away, of course. Hiroshi's previous encounter with the clothes thief must have left him more shaken than he'd thought, because he immediately reached for his sword. After a moment he took his hand off the hilt, feeling foolish. The speaker was a small man in the robes of a Buddhist monk. He sat cross-legged on the stones, tending a small fire upon which steamed a small kettle. Before him were cups and a ladle and a bamboo whisk for making tea. A traveler's bundle served as a rest for his back. Hiroshi bowed. Gomenasai, honored sir, I did not see you there. Obviously. I was about to have some tea, young man. Would you care to join me? The mention of tea made Hiroshi realize he was starting to get hungry. Yes, thank you. The monk prepared their tea in silence, though perhaps introductions would have been more in order. Hiroshi shrugged and pulled out two of the rice cakes he'd brought with him and offered one to the monk, who politely declined. Hiroshi then ate both of them, though he remembered his manners enough to let the monk take the first sip of tea before he began. He also studied the man as closely as manners would allow, without staring. His initial impression of small stature was on the mark. The man was tiny, even shorter than Hiroshi himself, though otherwise looked more or less human. Part of Hiroshi was wondering if the monk would suddenly grow fangs and attack him, but mostly he wondered what the man was doing there in that place and what he knew about the music. 
He held off asking for as long as he could. But that wasn't very long at all. Excuse me, but what did you mean about the music being farther away? Just that it is. You're much farther from it than you were. That wasn't very helpful, though Hiroshi didn't say so out loud. It was more than a little irritating. I don't understand. Will you explain? The monk didn't say anything for a while, merely sipping his tea. Hiroshi's annoyance faded. The monk seemed very tired and very sad, as if the whole subject was more painful than the man could say. When you dream, where do you go? The monk asked finally. Hiroshi frowned. I, I don't know. Some say the spirit wanders, aimless. Others say you don't go anywhere, and dreams are just stories you tell yourself while you sleep. The monk nodded. Men believe many things. Some of them are true. Now then, where do you go when you die? The river of souls, perhaps to be reborn. The monk nodded. Now then, where are you now? Hiroshi looked around, but the scene had not changed. He was in a cave far underground. His reasons for being there were perhaps not as clear as they could be, but he did know that much and said so. You know less than you think. Go home, Hiroshi. Hiroshi blinked. How do you know my name? The monk sighed gustily. <sighs> How do you not know mine? Hiroshi just stood in silence. I don't understand. You haven't told me your name. I should have asked, but I didn't mean to offend you. I am not offended. I do regret the time you're going to make me waste. The monk carefully packed away his tea supplies and hoisted his bundle. Shall we go? I can't ask you to come with me. You can't ask for me not to come with you. I choose what I do, as do you. I hope in time you will choose better. Hiroshi had no answer to that, because he didn't understand a word of it. He merely picked up his sword and set out once more in the direction of the music, or as close as he could discern. The monk walked a few feet ahead, his staff making a rhythmic jingling sound from the small bell attached to it. Hiroshi thought at first that the sound would interfere with the music, but the jingle of the bell was so steady and constant that it was soon as lost as the sound of his own heartbeat. This is a very strange cave, Hiroshi thought even as he realized how foolish a thing it was to believe this place a simple cave. Hiroshi thought of stories he had heard about the Dragon Palace, where a simple fisherman once dallied with a princess in ageless luxury for centuries under the sea, while his true home and all he knew turned to rot and dust. Except this was not under the sea, so far as Hiroshi knew, and the monk was certainly no princess. The music was still faint, but by long practice at listening, Hiroshi was beginning to hear it better. It's a koto being played, he said. It's lovely. The monk nodded, looking glum. Yes, Akiko is very gifted. Hiroshi was so surprised he stopped walking. The monk merely glanced at him over his shoulder, waiting patiently for him to catch up. You know who's playing the music? Hiroshi asked. Of course. So do you. That was just more nonsense from his odd companion, so far as Hiroshi could see, and he didn't dwell on it. Something he did dwell on was the simple fact that the music was getting louder. Another strange thing, since Hiroshi was certain they hadn't traveled more than a bowshot from where he and the monk had taken tea together. He mentioned it to the monk, who seemed even more dispirited. We're much closer now. How can that be? We haven't walked very far. It's not in how far you travel. It's in deciding to make the journey. I decided that when I climbed down the well. If you say so, I think rather that you were traveling away as much as toward. You didn't know where you were going. Now you do. Akiko, and you say, I know her? How? You grew up together. 
But I haven't grown up yet, Hiroshi said, though the admission pained him a bit. And although there are several girls my age in the village, I don't know anyone named Akiko. His companion merely grunted. Nor did she know anyone named Hiroshi. Sir, I don't understand any of what you're saying. You certainly don't. Else, you wouldn't be here. Hiroshi didn't know if he'd been insulted or not, but he rather thought so. He gritted his teeth, but kept his voice level. Then, honored sir, would you be so kind as to tell me where I should be? Home, of course. Very well. As soon as I find the music, I'll go home. I have to know what it is and why it calls to me, else I'll never be content. The monk nodded. You're not seeking music. You're seeking an answer. I wondered if you understood that. Very well, then. I will help you find Akiko. Yet, whatever happens, afterwards you will leave this place. You don't belong here. Do I have your word? Hiroshi hesitated, but he saw no good alternative. Yes. Well, then, you have mine. Only time will tell what either is worth. They walked for hours across what looked like the bones of a long-dead river. Hiroshi was amazed at how large the field of stones was and wondered if they would ever see the end. Now and then they came to a pile of white stones, standing alone on the flat, rocky nothing of that place. He asked about them, but the monk merely said, Stones, and nothing else. Also, now and again, Hiroshi could have sworn that he heard the sound of children playing. He asked about that, too, but the monk merely said that the children were always there. Hiroshi saw no children, but he let the matter drop. It was enough to know that what had appeared to be a cave was now a vast, empty riverbed of stones, and overhead was a darkness that might have been stone or might have been a night sky without stars. In fact, neither said anything at all for the rest of their walk, until the monk pointed to something rising from the stone field in the distance. She's there. Hiroshi looked closer. It was a hill by the riverbed. He hadn't noticed it sooner because it didn't rise very far from the rocks at all. That was because it began beneath it, at the bottom of a low, sloping valley. Hiroshi saw the way down marked by two stone lanterns. They cast a blue glow through the shadows of that place. Corpse lights drifted past on the wind. He stopped for a moment, listening closely. The music was much clearer now, more than enough to discern the instrument. Almost enough to discern the song. Hiroshi listened as hard as he knew how. I know that song. It's called... His voice trailed away. He couldn't remember, but he knew that was the only reason. He knew the song's name. He had known it long ago, and now forgotten. And yet he was equally sure he had never heard that song anywhere, but down the dry, dead well. Perhaps it doesn't matter, Hiroshi turned toward the entrance to the valley. It's guarded, of course. Guarded? By what? Three monsters. You'll have to face all three to reach Akiko. I'm not going with you. Hiroshi nodded. That would be best. Still, do you know how I can defeat the guardians? I didn't say you could defeat them. I said you had to face them. You do have a knack for misunderstanding your situation, young man. Honored sir, with all respect, you have a knack for meaningless answers. The monk smiled again. Pass the guardians first. Then tell me what I have said is meaningless. Hiroshi considered. He did not want to fight the monsters. He was afraid, and he couldn't pretend otherwise. He just knew that he had to go forward now. Not out of pride he didn't have, or bravery he didn't feel. It wasn't even for the music anymore. Maybe the monk was right. He wanted an answer. Something that would fill the empty ache he felt every time he heard the music. That he knew he always would feel, even if he never heard the music again. 
It's not as if I can stop listening. Hiroshi unsheathed his sword and stepped past the stone lanterns alone. Their glow faded behind him much sooner than he had expected. As in the first part of the cave, the light was very faint, but he could still see, barely. He moved slowly, carefully, trying to step quietly over the smooth gray stones. It didn't help. The first guardian was waiting for him before he had gone a dozen steps. Go home, boy. Hiroshi stood face to knee with a gigantic oni. It towered over him, a good eight feet tall. Its skin was redder than blood, its teeth like tusks, its hair like a lion's mane. It carried in its right hand a gigantic iron club. For several long moments, Hiroshi just stared. He couldn't raise his sword. He couldn't run. He couldn't do anything. I asked politely enough, grunted the Oni. Now it is too late. The creature swung its club. Too late, Hiroshi tried to dodge. He didn't get the full force of the blow, but he got more than enough. His vision exploded like a Chinese rocket, and for a moment all he could see was white, drifting stars. The first thing to come back to him, even before his vision, was his name. And it wasn't Hiroshi. My name is Yojiro. The rest of his former life came back to him then. Part of him remained Hiroshi and did not forget. Yet now he remembered being Yojiro, too. Growing up in the shadow of Fujisan and the people he had known there, he remembered being a young samurai, full of life and promise. He remembered the lesson he'd been taught, both in humility and the transience of life, the day he had died in battle. All this was known to him in the instant before he opened his eyes again, knowing himself to be Hiroshi, and knowing that he once was Yojiro. The Oni was nowhere to be seen. Hiroshi sat up, gingerly feeling the lump on the side of his head. I think I am still alive, yet I don't understand how that can be. Why didn't the ogre finish me off? I was no match for him. Hiroshi didn't question the new memories that had come to him on the Oni's club. He knew they had come to him for a reason. He didn't know what the reason was, but he was certain he wouldn't find out sitting there on the stones. He got to his feet, slowly, and looked around for his sword. It was lying some distance away. There was a nick on the blade where it had struck a stone on landing. That will take some time to polish out. Uncle will be cross. No help for it now. Hiroshi carefully sheathed the sword, then remembered to examine himself for any other injuries he might have missed, but there didn't seem to be any. That seemed strangely fortunate, but Hiroshi wasn't sure if it was anything of the sort. The other young man's memories were still strong in him, and he still didn't know what they might mean. There was also a curious gap in those memories, curious because of the vividness of all the others. Someone he could almost, but not quite, remember. Akiko? Perhaps, but knowing the name did not help. He couldn't picture her at all, nor name the song he still heard being played on the distant koto. He could picture the instrument itself, see delicate hands at its silk strings, but that was all. Hiroshi took a deep breath, and when he felt he was able, he followed the music one more time. The valley narrowed soon after. But the hill where Akiko waited was getting much closer, and the music, while distant, was very easy to hear. The same song, beautiful and melancholy. Hiroshi saw a bleak earth rise on either side of him, as if he was walking into a grave. At least the monster can't sneak up on me from the sides. The monster didn't bother. It waited, serene, in his path, right in front of him a coiled dragon with scales so smooth and black they glistened, its talons dripped venom, and it looked at him with unblinking red eyes. Go home, Hiroshi, it said. After the Oni, the sight of a dragon was not so startling, for all that Hiroshi could see death in its eyes. If I could go back, I would have. Please let me pass. That isn't the way of this place. The dragon said, 
and Hiroshi was almost certain that when it bared its fangs at him, the thing was coming as close to a smile as its appearance allowed. Hiroshi, terrified, and yet unable to retreat, did the only thing he could think to do, and drew his sword. Now I am sure it is smiling at me. Whether it was or not, the thing struck almost too fast for Hiroshi to see. It didn't bother to bite him. Its talons closed tightly on his right arm, and Hiroshi felt them piercing his flesh, sending their venom into his blood. A wave of agony washed over him, far worse than when the Oni had struck him down, far worse than anything he could have imagined. For a moment, he knew nothing, could know nothing through the haze of pain. He did not wake exactly. He heard a woman's voice speaking to him. He knew it for a dream, a memory, but real just the same. Akiko was speaking to him, somewhere, sometime. Him? No. Yojiro. It was Yojiro who heard, and Yojiro who answered. You will return, Yojiro. Promise me. I promise, Hiroshi heard himself answer in Yojiro's voice. It was a promise he had failed to keep. On the day he died. Hiroshi opened his eyes. The dragon was gone. Hiroshi was not surprised this time. He had begun to understand, perhaps a little. He had two sets of memories now. First, Yojiro. Now, Akiko. He remembered her, her glossy black hair and sweet face, remembered their love and the promises they had made to each other. He remembered dying. And she followed me. I'm sorry, Akiko. There would be a third guardian, but Hiroshi put his sword away. He did not think he would be needing it again. He followed the music, remembering the words, remembering who had played that song with so much joy before and so much sadness now. Cherry Blossoms on the Water The song was a promise of spring, a promise of many things. Hiroshi looked up at the hilltop. He could see the lone figure sitting there, bowed over the koto, playing the song that had called him down the well and away from his life. He was neither angry nor sad about that, but he was left with the problem of what to do. He did not try to climb the hill just yet. He waited for the guardian to appear, and soon he did, the rhythmic jingle of his staff serving counterpoint to the mournful koto. Greetings, honored sir, Hiroshi said to the monk. Hiroshi was a little surprised, but not very much. Why wait for me? The way to the hill was clear. Hiroshi shook his head. Obvious, perhaps, but not clear. Nor do I think you intend to stop me directly. Either of the other two could have done that. The monk nodded. You're perhaps less of a fool than I thought. How much less, though? That is not certain. The first two guardians gave me Yojiro and then Akiko, Hiroshi said. What will the third guardian do? Perhaps he will take them away again. Perhaps that is up to you. What should I do? I told you before. Go home. I will go home, for that was my promise. Yet I have another promise that I must keep first, one even longer delayed. The monk frowned but stood aside. I will wait here. If you return... Hiroshi didn't like the way the monk said if, but he understood. He slowly walked up the hill. Akiko sat with her back to him, her long white fingers on the strings of the koto. Too long. Too white. Her kimono, too, was white, and it sagged back upon her bony shoulders. Hiroshi remembered those shoulders. That neck, whiter than snow, grayish now. He could not see her face. Her back was turned, and she could not see him. But she obviously knew he was there. Yojiro, you've come back to me. She started to rise, but Hiroshi stepped forward and took her shoulders in a gentle but firm grip. He tried not to think of the scent that rose from her now.
so different from long ago. Do not look at me, Akiko. Why not? Because I'm dead. I was. I mean, Yojiro. I remember. I waved my sword about quite bravely. Then I was shot full of arrows, and they cut off my head. My ankles were spiked. You've returned, she insisted. You called me from another place, with your music and my promise. I kept my promise. But I don't belong here. Now I must go. She shook her head slowly. Let me look at you. What will you see, Akiko? What will I see when I look at you now? We are not what we were. I've traveled the River of Souls before and returned to the living world. You must do the same. Stay? She sounded confused. You must stay? No, he said. You promised. I promised to return, and I have, to love you, and I did. I remember, I, Yojiro, loved you. Let that be enough. No! What will I see when you look at me? I remember your beauty. Do you want me to see what you are now? I am Akiko. Yes. You are also dead. And your flesh has gone to corruption. As long as you remain on this hilltop down in the darkness, playing that song for me, you will remain dead. I don't want that. And neither should you. Please, she said, and reached up to touch his hand. Her fingers were cold, and there was no living flesh to them. Hiroshi took a deep breath. He knew what he must do, but it wasn't his decision. It was Yojiro's, for the woman who died out of love for him. Forgive me, Akiko, but I believe I will need Hiroshi's sword one last time. Please, play for me, he said. Cherry blossoms. On the water. Always, she said, and her fingers caressed the strings as they had his face and body. Once long ago. In one smooth movement, with less thought than a breath, Hiroshi drew his sword and brought it down on the strings, just to the side of Akiko's fingers. The taut silk strings parted with a high screeching sound, like a wail of despair, fading, only to be echoed by Akiko. She twisted suddenly in his arms, fingers reaching to claw, not caress. But Hiroshi held firm and looked full into her ruined face, painting over the horror he saw there with one last strong memory of beauty. Goodbye, he said. His memory clothed her in full life for just a moment. Then it began to fade, as did Akiko. In a moment both were gone, leaving only a trace of sadness and a faint ghostly memory that was more like a dream. Hiroshi was left alone on the hill with the shattered instrument. After a bit, he made his way back down to the valley again, where the monk was waiting for him. She can move on now, the monk said, as you must. That was well done. Hiroshi just said, I would like to go home now. They made their way out of the valley and back across the dry stream bed of stones. Hiroshi looked at the piles of stones again, and again he listened. There was no music. But he did hear the sound of children playing. He was sure of it this time. But he said nothing until they were past the stones and walking through the cave back to the well. He looked at his companion. I thought you were a simple monk. But I also thought this a simple cave. Who do you think I am? If this is the River of Souls, then there are many powerful kami in this place. But I think you are the one called the God of Children, Hiroshi said. Yet I also think what you did, you did for Yojiro and Akiko. 
not for me. They were young, but they were not children. Why? We are all children, Hiroshi, the monk said. And that was all. It wasn't an answer, but then Hiroshi no longer remembered asking a question of the little monk, or, for that matter, remembered the little monk himself. Even the names Akiko and Yojiro were fading from his memory now. And then they were gone completely. Hiroshi was alone. He knew only that he was in a deep, dark place where he did not belong, and the way out was clear. Hiroshi saw a blue sky far above and let it guide him as he climbed back up into the living world. Our thanks to Richard for allowing us to record such a fantastic story. Cherry Blossoms on the River of Souls was named to the 2013 Locust Recommended Reading List, and other adventures featuring Yamada Nogoji are collected in Yamada Monogatari, Demon Hunter, and the novels Yamada Monogatari, To Break the Demon Gate, and Yamada Monogatari, The War God's Son. If you'd like to hear more of Yamada's adventures on the Triple F, let us know, and we'll beg Mr. Parks for more. You can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and as just mentioned, we want to know your thoughts on our content. Before I go, I'd like to say thanks to Susan McKivigan for our new cover art. What can we say about Susan? An award-winning digital muse, graphic designer and artist, and stay-at-home mom to two awesome kids, she has faced many challenges and greets each day with a smile. When not working and improving her skills in digital art, she enjoys cooking, 3D modeling, texturing, painting, crafts, sewing, the beach, gardening, traveling, and so much more. She's done artwork for many CD covers, book covers, magazines, e-zines, and assorted commissioned and licensed work. She's appeared in Image FX several times and has sold thousands of prints. Please feel free to check out her gallery on Renderosity or DeviantArt. You'll find the link in our show notes. You can also add her on Facebook and Twitter. We are very thankful to have her art featured on the Triple F. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors and artists. Violators will be fed to an ornai, feet first. And last of all, but definitely not least, we'd like to say a very, very happy birthday to the founder of the District of Wonders, Mr. Tony C. Smith, sir. May you have many, many more. It's a big day. Don't have too many beverages. That's all from me, dear listeners, for another week. I'll see you same time, same place, next week. Bye now. Something wants in to your head through this audiobook. Interference by Eric Luke. An experiment in meta horror. Available at quillhammer.com. Just click play. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.